Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, Produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SupChina Access. And visit SupChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op-eds, videos, and of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today on Seneca, we're talking about what a progressive foreign policy should look like, and specifically, what shape the American progressive policy toward China ought to take. Right now, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that the American left is all over the place when it comes to China. I'm not really including the so-called tankies, who are pretty hardcore in the support for the party under Xi Jinping's leadership, and uh, defend stubbornly everything from Xi's abolition of term limits from uh, China's claims in the South China Sea to his position on Taiwan, uh, his imposition of, of the national security law in Hong Kong, uh, all the way up to his policies in Xinjiang, when you know they even acknowledge the existence of the so-called re-education camps at all. Uh, those people aside, there is still some profound disagreement within the self-identified American progressive camp uh, when it comes to China. Some, in their zeal to champion the perceived interests of working-class Americans, tend to favor economic protectionism and to view China's state capitalism as, you know, being just as objectionable as American capitalism, or even more, to revile globalization, uh, while others aren't in any hurry at all to decouple from China and, and want to see trade ties deepen and capital flows increase. Some seem to be eager to use American power up to and even including military power uh, to put an end to Chinese human rights abuses, as if that were possible, uh, while others are horrified by the crescendo of the war drums. Uh, it's not hard to imagine just about any permutation of convictions on the progressive left when it comes to what our correct posture toward China should be. So anyway, I am delighted to be joined by two people who've been thinking a lot about these issues and can articulate what they believe to be a sensible approach that is consonant with progressive values. 
Tobita Chow is the director of Justice is Global, a special project of People's Action that is building a movement to create a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism around the world. Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, his work is focused on building political support for global cooperation to end the pandemic and countering the rise of xenophobia in the U.S. Toby, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Jake Werner is a postdoctoral Global China Research Fellow at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. He is currently researching the emergence of great power conflict between the U.S. and China following the 2008 financial crisis and how new strategies for global development could resolve those tensions. Jake, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Kaiser. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's been um, something I've wanted to do for a long time to have you both on, so I'm glad we could finally find time. Uh, before we plunge in, l let's talk a little bit about the tankies. Um, just now, I, I kind of offhandedly dismissed them um, in, in that intro, but I, I wonder whether you think that's entirely warranted. Do, do they bring anything valuable or important to this conversation? Yeah, so I think some very critical in some fundamental ways of uh, the perspective of the tankies. Uh, what I see is um, like apologetics on behalf of the Chinese government. Their sort of trenchant skepticism and uh, criticism of uh, the role played by U.S. state interests is like not always wrong. And, and you know, they're very dedicated to sort of fishing out all the ways that um, U.S. state interests can sort of distort information around China. So things uh, from uh, the sort of analyses that they put out. But at the same time, I think their analyses uh, are often wrong. And uh, from a progressive point of view, politically self-undermining, I think it is not a, a, a productive strategy for progressives and, and for the left to uh, stand up in, in defense of authoritarian regimes and uh, human rights abuses uh, abroad. I think that's not a good way for us to build political power uh, in the U.S. or anywhere. Uh, but, you know, also, like, realistically, when it comes to building a broad front in opposition to uh, anti-China nationalism and militarism uh, in the U.S., um, uh, these people uh, are making a, a good showing. They're, they're bringing some power to the table. Uh, they have influence in a number of important organizations. So uh, I think whatever you think of, of, of the tankies, they are a force to be reckoned with within progressive politics and encountering this U.S.-China conflict. Hmm, hmm. An interesting perspective. Jake, what about you? What, what's your, your take on these guys? Uh, whew. I mean, I, I, I wish that I, I wish we didn't have uh, to deal with this on the left. Essentially, what tankies are doing are, are apologizing for the very things that the left is critical of in the United States, uh, just when China exactly. does the same things. Um, I mean, I, I do think there is something useful about seeing the kind of mirror image of uh, more conservative forces in the United States uh, reflecting back to themselves. So it's, so it, you know, when the Hong Kong protests happen and the apologists for the Chinese government said, you know, look at these violent people, they're totally illegitimate. Uh, we ought not listen to their demands and then turn around 
a few months later and celebrate the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States that were likewise on occasion violent, uh, likewise issued demands that were fundamentally challenging to establish political power. Um, I mean, it, at one level, it's just straight hypocrisy. But of course, right-wing people in the United States did the exact opposite. And so it's they're mere images of each other. And I think the thing that's useful about that is to see that th there actually are very similar dynamics going on in both countries. So even if the right-wing in the United States is very one-sided about it, they're getting something. They're getting at something that's going on in China. Whereas the the um, the vulgar anti-imperialists who are apologists for China, uh, they're articulating the other side of that, and um, and actually both sides have a point there. But in their one-sidedness, then they kind of lose the foundation for for either an effective or an actually liberatory politics. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's always been my problem with you know gray zone, and it's all. It's great it's that they oppose American imperialism, but it's not so great that they fail to see imperialism's manifestations in other polities, especially in, in China, in this case, in, in Russia. And the other thing is that they blur seize China and Putin's Russia, which to me just feeds into a kind of pathology of the right, which tends to do that, uh, which you know also conflates China and Russia. And I think that, that, that doesn't help us in the least. Uh, so I'm still, you know, all about shunning them. I'll think to to to, to be his point. I think it's it's true. They they do bring power to to the table, and you know, there's once in a while. I mean, I it's they sometimes are the only ones with the balls to write these pretty savage takedowns of of you know Falun Gong, or they go way overboard sometimes. But yeah, they, well, anyway, yeah. I think you know, I if I can add one thing, I think um, part of how I'd like to approach uh, sort of this wing of the of the left is uh, by like making an argument based on their own professed ideals. And I think, you know, one of the ideals that they profess, which I also share deeply is the need for uh, global solidarity. And uh, I think there's an important argument to be made that their approach actually undermines the prospects of global solidarity, uh, particularly from like a working class perspective that they uphold. Uh, like in my experience, one of the best ways to build a sense of, of solidarity between people in the U.S. and people in China and thereby undermine the appeal of Sinophobic narratives is by uh, drawing close connections between the plight of working class people in China and the plight of working class, class people in America. There's a lot of shared experiences. Uh, very often people are being exploited and repressed by the same small number of transnational corporations. Now, in order to um, uh, highlight the similarities between workers here and there, critique of in terms of exploitation and repression of the Chinese working class. And if you're shying away from uh, just clear critiques of China, then you're not going to get there. And you think is one of the most powerful ways to build a sense of transnational solidarity and encounter this rise of, of nationalistic sentiment. That's very well put. Very, very well put. So uh, in my intro, I talked a little bit about, you know, what attitudes toward China among progressives look like from where I sit, that they're, you know, all over the map. But you guys are actively talking about these issues with people on the left. Do I have this right or do I have this wrong? I mean, are are these perspectives on what U.S. foreign policy toward China should be uh, as, as uh, confused as I've suggested? Uh, I think uh, there is uh, a lot of deep confusion and just um, a lack of familiarity 
uh, and, and a sense of confidence around how to address these issues. Yeah, yeah. Jake, what do you think? There's probably there's probably two general uh, orientations towards this on the left. One is, uh, as we just talked about, a, a vulgar kind of anti-imperialism that thinks about the U.S. as the source of all evil in the world. And a lot of a lot of the thinking there comes out of the experience of the U.S. in the Middle East over the last 20 years. And that really doesn't prepare one for the for the problem of how the U.S. should relate to China. It's just a very different situation when you have the second most powerful country in the world as opposed to a country like Iraq that was clearly subordinate. Then on the other side, there's the human rights orientation, which tends to be um, very moralizing. And, and while I'm extremely sympathetic to the, the, the feeling of uh, repugnance towards the human rights violations of the um, of the Communist Party. Um, I think that the the problem with the a human rights orientation, if that's the basis of your politics, is that it doesn't really explain how to change those things. It really just condemns them. And if you want to figure out how to change them, you really have to understand why they're happening. And people with a more moralizing outlook will often resist that attempt to explain why things are happening because it's, it feels like a rationalization or something. Right. It feels like it's saying, no, no, it's okay. It's okay for us to have human rights violations. Like it makes sense, but it does make sense. There are reasons that these things are happening and we have to understand them. Um, you know, the, the communist party is much more repressive now than it was 10 years ago. Why did that happen? That's an important question that has to be answered and I think the answer to that question re- leads in a different direction than just a kind of denounce Chinese Communist Party as the politics. And staying with you for a second, Jake, you've laid out uh, in, in conversations we've had a case that you can't really look just at China in isolation when you're trying to answer that question. Why is China more repressive than it was 10 years ago? When you're trying to craft a policy toward China, you have a broader view. You have you, you like to look at the, the entirety of the global picture and what's happened globally. Can you lay out that case for me uh, wh- and, 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 and identify what some of the major changes that have happened in the global system uh, that have, have affected these things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the, everyone has noticed that China uh, moved to the right on both nationalism and especially authoritarianism. Over the last decade, of course, Xi Jinping is an important part of this, um, but the movement began before he came to power. Uh, he really just intensified and consolidated it. So it can't, I don't think it can be explained through him. Um, I also don't think it can be explained through something about China itself, Chinese culture, or something about the Chinese Communist Party, um, because you can't explain uh, a transformation by appeal to a kind of persistent essence of a thing. Uh, China was significantly, significantly less repressive 10 years ago. Uh, the Communist Party was in charge then. The Communist Party is in charge now. So something, something else happened. And the, the, the important part about thinking about this in global terms is that countries all over the world have seen a similar and parallel shift. So whether you're looking at India or Turkey or the Philippines or Poland or, or the United States. 
all these countries. You go on have, Hungary, Brazil. I mean, have, yes, yeah. I, the list just like keeps going. Um, so the so the question is, if all of these countries have seen a shift towards uh, intolerant nationalism and a, a centralizing authoritarianism over the last decade, what's going on? It can't be something about China. There's something at the global level that we need to understand there. Um, and the the way that I understand this is, it comes out of the kind of cascading social changes that come out of the 2008 global financial crisis and uh, sort of builds towards a rejection of the old, uh, the old way of doing things and the old way of understanding things. So the, the sort of ideology and practice of free market globalization that had seemed to be moving all countries in one direction um, and this is, and you know, like people will sort of laugh at the end of history idea now, but there were reasons to think it that actually there was a liberalization of societies around the world sure. from the nineties up to 2008, including China. China is not an exception here. It did it certainly did not democratize, but the, the space for politics in China opened up extraordinarily uh, over those two decades in all kinds of realms from journalism to uh, labor organizing to feminist activism. And uh, so you have political liberalization. You, of course, you have economic liberalization. Um, and this was happening globally as different countries everywhere were integrated into uh, the free market globalization system. Um, the, I think what happened in 2008 is that even though the economy started growing again, it was. It had lost the dynamism of the previous period, and even though there wasn't an immediate rejection at the level of uh, ideology or culture of the old way of doing things, the more cosmopolitan, liberal, uh, sort of universal values, that orientation wasn't immediately rejected, but it started to break down really mm. in, in, ineluctably. And over the, then over the years after the crisis seemed to have been resolved. In fact, there was another crisis building up and it was building up not so much in the economy, although it had to do with the economy. It was building up in the, in the realm of ideology. Is the system legitimate? And in the realm of politics, who is, who is going to run these countries and, and what direction are they going to take them? To what extent do you think that uh, a lot of this that we saw happening, and let me, let me say first that I, I think that this is the question that all people who work on China really ought to be thinking about, you know, what happened, what caused the illiberal turn, uh, and I think you, you have a very plausible answer to that. I think it's it's, um, I'm, I'm sure that you don't believe that it's the one and only cause, but I think that you, you've identified something that should be a part of everyone's thinking on why this happened. To what extent, though, do you think that it was also? Uh, a sense in, in the case specifically of China, and I think this this is possibly true of some of the other countries as well. And I would look uh, certainly at at, at uh, Russia and possibly also at Iran in this period, where there was a distinct sense that uh, American policy had found a more powerful tool for effecting its long cherished goal of regime change. Uh, Beijing. Uh, Moscow and Tehran all sort of believed that while there was very little actual threat using the neoconservative style of regime change, you know, rolling tanks into your capital, uh, when it came to any of these three countries, uh, the, the the maturity of this model 
that was seen in the later color revolutions and then in the early Arab Spring or proto-Arab Spring movements, uh, that proved really, really threatening to, especially to Beijing and to Moscow. Uh, I feel like that's sort of one of the, the answers that I've lit on as well. And it, it dovetails really well with uh, your explanation uh, because it, 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 it could harness uh, some of those same forces that you were talking about. Right. I, I mean, I think there's, you always want to look at it two ways on this question of, of kind of foreign relations, because every kind of external threat is felt to be threatening because of what's going on internally. And it's not one, it's not exactly one or the other. It's rather that they kind of come together uh, in the right moments and create a shift in thinking. And I think that's that was going on in in China. The Chinese leadership was becoming increasingly anxious about its own domestic legitimacy at the same moment that there was a really fundamental challenge to the the existing development strategy at the very moment that there seemed to be an increase in labor unrest. There seemed to be an increase in uh, environmental protests. Um, and at that same moment, then or roughly the same moment, the, the uh, early Obama administration turned its attention to Asia. And even though the, the so-called pivot to Asia was, was not, I don't think, was a terribly significant uh, shift in U.S. policy, nonetheless, it was perceived by the Chinese leadership as very threatening. And I think that had to do with this feeling of insecurity and anxiety that comes out of the kind of crisis atmosphere that the leadership is is have found itself caught up in. And I think actually the a little bit delayed, but there's something very similar has been happening in the United States that U.S. elites were deeply shaken by the crisis. Mm. They felt their own loss of legitimacy. They felt like they were losing control. And uh, rather than uh, rather than being introspective about it and rethinking the way that society works, many of them looked outward to try to explain why they were feeling so unsettled and so insecure. And they looked to China uh, above all to explain that, uh, China and Russia, of course. Um, but especially China, because China seemed to threaten the possibilities for growth in the, in the U.S. economy. And it wasn't false either. Uh, they're, they're because, uh, because the free market globalization lost its dynamism after the crisis, there really was uh, a, a vulnerability in the U.S. economy the U.S. economy really does rely on these extremely high-profit sectors uh, in tech and uh, some of these other uh, whatever AI, robotics, biotechnology that, that the, the Chinese development strategy has moved towards. And that was perceived to be extremely threatening for good reason. Um, so in part, I think we have, uh, on the one hand, we have a sense of insecurity and anxiety that's looking for an explanation. And on the other hand, there really is uh, 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 serious threats coming both ways, the U.S. threatening China and China threatening the United States. Uh, but the real failure here is to understand that, that those two countries that previously had worked in complementary ways, that complementarity was lost, not because of the sinister designs of the elites in one country or the other, but because the larger global situation had changed. And the possibilities for both countries had really become much more restricted after the crisis. Excellent, excellent. 
Toby, I think um, anyone listening to our conversation thus far uh, would have already some pretty good idea of what a progressive U.S. policy toward China would look like. But I think we should maybe make it more explicit. Uh, what are the features of this foreign policy? What would it do? I mean, obviously, it would be one that opposes war, that cares more about equitable outcomes, that uh, respects labor and respects labor, you know, in a bilateral sense, uh, respects Chinese labor also. Uh, it's let's 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 flesh this thing out. Let's flesh out what its features would be. Yeah. So I think, uh, like you said, it should uh, respect labor in the interests of poor working people uh, on both be grounded in uh, a very clear recognition uh, of the shared interests of the of people in the US in China and around the world both the shared interests and sort of the commonalities in in the plight of uh, poor working people in the US and in China and, and everywhere it's a lot of shared experiences and uh, in fact, those shared experiences come from a common cause in uh, a single uh, global system that we are uh, all living under right now. And then, you know, uh, from that analysis, it should prioritize key progressive values and goals, which uh, include increasing uh, protections for labor rights and uh, with a goal of uh, increasing uh, the power of labor with respect to to capital. We we need a uh, a clear view of of this problem that exists in West China and globally, which is the power of capital over labor uh, has become excessive. And we also need to prioritize the key challenges of the 21st century, which are global in scope. In scope, and that includes climate change. It includes global poverty, and most immediately, it includes uh, global public health and getting this pandemic uh, under control. We need to uh, prioritize in our uh, relationship uh, to China negotiations for new standards and new systems that can uh, protect and further these uh, progressive goals and make that this the center of uh, transforming the the U.S.-China relationship, and then and then beyond that, the entire global economy. Where it gets complicated is when we introduce human rights. Obviously, a progressive agenda is one that should advance human rights. But then we confront questions like, should a progressive agenda support national self-determination for all ethnic groups that desire it? Should it promote religious freedom irrespective of uh, the actual practices of a religion in question, uh, th things like that are a little bit thornier, right? So I think that uh, as progressives, we can't give up on uh, some minimum standards. And that's often raised as uh, an objection to uh, the approach uh, that we're advocating for and organizing around, right? The argument goes that um, there's going to inevitably be a trade-off between prioritizing, for example, U.S.-China cooperation to get uh, climate change under control. Uh, that's going to result in a, a trade-off with um, uh, pressuring China to improve uh, uh, its on, on, on human rights and to cease its abuses in, in Xinjiang and uh, the crackdowns in Hong Kong and, and um, among other abuses on the part of the Chinese government. Um, I think this is a uh, mistaken 
argument. Like I feel the force behind it, but I think that it's ultimately mistaken. What we need to understand is that we are currently on a path of spiraling conflict between the US and China. And there is no scenario under which that translates into improved uh, conditions for currently oppressed people uh, within China. Uh, to the contrary, that will only exacerbate uh, anxiety and, and paranoia and nationalism within China, both at a popular level and among uh, Chinese elites. And then that will inevitably result in an exacerbation of uh, repressive policies in order to maintain social control. Uh, on the flip side, if we can re-establish uh, a basis for uh, a U.S.-China relationship where um, both sides feel like they have an investment in sustaining the relationship, um, that uh, there's something positive to be gotten out of the relationship, um, then I think that uh, creates a better foundation to uh, negotiate around issues of, of human rights, which you know I think, again, as progressives, um, we, we can't give up on. And yeah, I just think we need to be very clear that the spiraling U.S.-China conflict risks creating a sense that there's just no advantage to be gained uh, on behalf of Chinese authorities in giving in to demands around around human rights. Like, does anyone really think that um, if there was some marginal improvement in rights in, in Xinjiang, that that would translate into a similar more improvement in the U.S.? fears and aggression uh, against China. As, as things stand, that doesn't seem like a like uh, a, a realistic pitch. Not at all. Yeah, it's not realistic at all. Jake, another one of the, the issues that's complicated is imperialism. I mean, traditionally, the progressive left in America opposes imperialism in all its forms. Uh, but imperialism is really complicated when we look at uh, issues like Hong Kong, for example, where uh, you could at the same time argue that China is practicing a form of imperialism uh, in, in its, its dominion over Hong Kong, but also it's, it's fighting to extirpate a legacy of white colonial imperialism, of British colonial imp imperialism. Uh, it, it, it feels like it's a weapon that can be sort of raised by both sides. Uh, China certainly has its own imperialist practices when we look at uh, the system in Xinjiang. I don't think that's that that situation can be analyzed except through the lens of colonialism or imperialism. But uh, of course, China historically has only recognized itself as a victim of and never a perpetrator of. So it's it's almost a non-starter to to try to uh, to talk to Chinese interlocutors and and use the I word or the C word. Uh, how how do you wrestle with that? I think there's, we want to think about this at two levels. One is in terms of the analysis and one is in terms of the politics. So like how we actually want to talk to people around this issue. In terms of the politics, uh, I think just raising the issue of imperialism shuts, shuts down the conversation and is mm -hmm. not terribly useful um, because it's, it's clear that there is something fundamentally wrong about imperialism. And as soon as you start accusing someone of imperialism, then it's just, again, it's back to a kind of moralizing condemnation uh, rather than putting the focus where it needs to be, which I think is figuring out why forms of international hierarchy exist and then thinking about what kinds of practical policies and initiatives and what kinds of like also including confrontational struggles uh, would be required to change those dynamics. So obviously we're not going to change really 
deeply founded hierarchies of inequality of wealth and power uh, simply by criticizing them. So we need that good analysis, like where does the international hierarchy come out of? And I, I'm just not persuaded by the idea that elites in the United States or elites in China are kind of power mad and they want to control other countries. I think there is a fairly practical political calculus out of which this comes, as well as something about the gaining status within the international hierarchy. Um, so I think that, again, I, I would want to return attention to the global system. The global system is intrinsically hierarchical. It has uh, different roles for different countries. Some countries are charged with maintaining security for the entire global system. That's really just the United States. Whether other countries dislike sometimes the way that the U.S. exercises its power is beside the point. Most elites in the world have accepted U.S. power to sort of keep the system running smoothly. Now the system is starting to fall apart. And and both because the U.S. has not been able to maintain order in the system and because uh, some of the forces pulling the system apart, such as the growth of uh, Chinese military power, are themselves part of this uh, this process of disintegration, uh, now we need to look in different directions. So whereas in the past, uh, U.S. hegemony was very difficult to challenge in any practical way, I think now it's open to challenge. Uh, at the same time, there's a real danger that China, if it's uh, if it's forced into this position, may itself seek hegemony in order to guarantee its own ability uh, to grow and to guarantee the security of the regime, et cetera. So I, what, I, what I think we ought to do is spend less time throwing around the word imperialism and spend more time figuring out what a global system would look like that would tend to reduce the hierarchy among countries, would tend to reduce the level of exploitation that countries um, uh, perpetrate against each other. Um, and so without, without giving up the critique of, of, you know, international subordination and exploitation and, uh, and violence, which is extremely important, we really need an analysis that understands where this is coming from. So fantastic, Jake. Uh, are you guys worried about what China policy under a Biden administration would look like? I mean, touch wood, but I, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, changing my mind on this with each new pronouncement from somebody who's a putative advisor to Joe Biden. I mean, I read uh, Michelle Fournoy recently in, in Foreign Affairs and uh, I despaired. And then I read something that Ryan Haas wrote and, and I felt a whole lot better. Uh, I don't know who has his ear. I don't know. Any, but um, how, how are you feeling about how China policy in the Biden administration would shape up? Shape up? Um. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, at times it, it can be a bit like trying to read the the tea leaves, uh, but I think our overall assessment is that under a Biden administration, what we would what we would anticipate is that the U.S. and China would remain on escalating conflict. Um, however, a Biden administration in comparison to the Trump administration um, would uh, manage this in a, a more moderate and reasonable and, and predictable. Um, 
so that, you know, I think we would be much less worried than at least I currently am. There could be a sudden flare up of uh, like open conflict in the South China Sea. I think that under a Biden administration, that sort of thing would be managed um, uh, much more responsibly. I, I don't believe that uh, they're going to, you know, however a, a Biden administration ends up staffing development positions, I don't think that they're going to be able to pull us onto a different path uh, from the deterioration uh, uh, that we're, we're currently, you know, we see um, from uh, voices uh, within the Biden camp and from the Democratic Party more generally, um, some of the correct uh, big picture goals, um, a repudiation of Trump's tariff wars, a repudiation of the so-called new Cold War. Um, I think those are uh, the right goals to subscribe to. But I think that um, achieving those goals re- requires um, not just a, a rejection of, of, of Trump's the Trump administration's style of approaching the U.S.-China relationship, but uh, a very like radical uh, rethink of the U.S.-China relationship and more broadly the the global economy, um, as, as Jake has discussed. And um, uh, uh, I don't anticipate that we're going to see that. Yeah, I think I think it's the job of us as progressives and organizers to build the power necessary to push a Biden administration uh, in that direction. Um, but that's not they're not going to come up with that um, uh, uh, on their own. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Jake, I I take it that you don't advocate just a return to the old policy of engagement. Uh, and if it's not something that that is a choice between old school engagement, which is built on to some extent on on the same kind of modernization theory that got us in trouble in the first place, what what is the alternative that comes out of your analysis? What do you have a name for it? Do you do you have a, a sort of shorthand for how you would describe a, a set of policies that you would envision? Yeah, I mean, I would call it progressive globalization. I think there, there, there was this period of free market globalization. Uh, it's widely understood that uh, people around the world have rejected free market globalization in, in, a, in a variety of uh, highly destructive and less destructive ways. Um, but like nationalism is one very sort of transparent rejection of the cosmopolitanism of free market globalization. Uh, authoritarianism is also a very transparent rejection of the the political liberalism that that was part of the ideology of free market globalization. Um, so it's widely understood that that there has been this rejection of globalization. I think the the failure on the part of I won't I won't speak about the right right wing that has really embraced this. Um, like the Republican Party, I think is actually being transformed by this, and is and is the the hold of free market ideology is weakening within the Republican Party through the kind of uh, uh, toxic nationalism coming up around China, as well as anti-immigrant, excuse me, anti-immigrant politics. Um, but the, 
A common response on the more liberal end of the spectrum has been to to say, well, we can co-opt this anti-globalization uh, feeling and and just run with it. Like, yeah, we'll be we'll be anti-China. We'll talk about uh, China as a way to to explain why we need public investment, and that's going to allow us to appeal to conservative voters as well as liberal voters. And I think that this. Uh, is a, a really serious misunderstanding of the dynamics that we're in right now. Mm. One, it's, there's just a, it's just a basic political error to run on the narratives that your enemies have as their foundation, because that immediately gives them credibility. And of course, they're going to be able to come up with more convincing messages uh, around something like great power competition. But I think it also really misunderstands the the nature of conflicts in the global system right now to think you hear this, you hear, you hear this often uh, people, a democratic party foreign policy uh, people will say, you know, we're going to have great power competition with China, but we're also going to cooperate on some things like climate or the pandemic or whatever. Um, and I think that's sort of a fantasy that the, what has happened over, over this period as the globalization system has has disintegrated is that the US and China are stuck in a in a zero sum framework and as long as uh as long as the US is attempting to prevent China from moving into the the high value sectors that are currently really important to the US economy um that's going to mean there can't be any serious cooperation between the two countries. And, and my fear is that that will also give an opening to worse and worse nationalism when we get a cycle of, of uh, destruction into, into an abyss that could lead towards uh, much more violent kinds of conflict than we're currently experiencing. And so I think the alternative really is to say, no, we're not going to, like, we're not going to offer a weak version of nationalism. We're actually going to embrace globalization but we're going to demand a kind of globalization that fundamentally repudiates a lot of the tenets and a lot of the outcomes of the free market globalization that uh, threw us into this mess. Uh, and what that means is that it's not going to be uh, driven by the free market. It's not going to be, it's also not going to uh, sort of celebrate increasing inequality as a kind of natural outcome of different, of different talents of, of individuals and firms and countries. Um, what we should be looking for instead is a globalization that is egalitarian, uh, for which uh, development of the poorest countries is one of the top priorities, but that links the, the growth in the poorest countries to new opportunities for the existing middle-income and high-income countries so that there's kind of a universal interest in pursuing this form of globalization rather than the, uh, the kind of globalization that created a lot of losers, either in the working class in the rich countries, or even if it did lift a lot of people out of poverty, it was a very shallow success in terms of raising incomes in the poor countries. And we've seen under, under the coronavirus crisis that Almost all of those gains that were made over the last 20 years in terms of raising incomes of the poorest people have just been wiped out just like that. So it was people's incomes improved uh, broadly, but extremely shallowly. And 
the, the alternative to that is a serious developmental program. And I think China actually has a lot to, uh, to offer there, to teach us and with the forms of uh, foreign investment that it's pursuing now. Uh, there are models for moving capital into uh, the countries that have been starved of capital for the last 40 years. That doesn't mean that there aren't serious problems with, with what China is doing through Belt and Road and through other uh, foreign investment initiatives. But uh, what I, I think what I would advocate is that when it comes to an agenda of progressive globalization, I would like the U.S. and China to work together and learn from each other rather than trying to batter each other into defeat. I think it's a very persuasive, very attractive uh, idea that you're, you're putting out there. You guys are actively promoting these, these ideas through groups like uh, Justice is Global, which is a part of People's Action. How do you guys go about promoting your ideas about China's po China policy? Uh, what are the major messages that you try to drive? Uh, because you know nobody's going to, to listen to a 45-minute long podcast about this stuff. I mean, you know, you need to you need to condense it. I mean, and, and maybe following up on that, I mean, not everybody cares so much or makes China such a big priority in their in in, in policy. I mean, there are lots of people uh, who care more about global warming or income inequality, racial justice, healthcare, uh, infrastructure development. All of these things I can imagine touch certainly on China, but how do you talk to them? Um, yeah, so speaking to uh, the second half of that, of the work um, that we've been doing starting before that as well, is to reach out to other organizations that work on some of these other issue areas, uh, including climate, to get on the same page uh, strategically about what the U.S.-China relationship needs to look like and how it fundamentally needs to change and how we need to uh, uh, create an alternative to these escalating US-China tensions um, in order to uh, meet the goals that that they uh, already have and that, that we share. So, um, you know, I mentioned climate. I think uh, there is a significant potential there to sort of build a united front um, around the need to combat climate change at the global level and what we're talking about in terms of transforming the U.S.-China relationship, and uh, the the agenda that uh, Jake talked about about uh, transforming global development and uh, drawing upon uh, the established strengths uh, within China to create a new form of like deeper global investment and development, uh, including in the global South, that closely dovetails with uh, any sort of realist, and I mean realistic. In, in terms of actually meet the extent and depth of the challenge, any realistic response to, to climate change. You know, so what some uh, are now talking about under the heading of a global Green New Deal, which would be a global plan to push investment in clean energy development uh, as quickly as possible all around the world. Um, and China has uh, strengths in uh, a series of, of clean energy technology industry uh, around the world, and including, by the way, in the U.S., is to work closely uh, together uh, with the Chinese firms that that are leading that work. More immediately than that, even is uh, you know, we can tell a story, a similar story around uh, there too. We need to establish deep new forms of international cooperation, in particular between uh, the U.S. and China. Um, so that's sort of behind the scenes work. You also uh, asked though about um, 
how we approach from sort of a public messaging um, perspective. Is yeah, maybe Jake, you want to take that? Yeah, I mean the some of the public messaging is is fairly straightforward on this. That um, given you know, like coming out of Toby's comments here, given the scope of the challenges that we're facing right now, and given the fact that they are irreducibly global. You don't beat the pandemic anywhere until you beat it everywhere. You don't solve climate without figuring out how to do uh, uh, growth and development in a sustainable way everywhere. It's not right. If, if, if India runs with coal, if China continues the level of coal that it's currently using, it doesn't matter what the United States does. Um, so things like climate, things, things like uh, the pandemic, but also then... And I think this is a little bit harder to see, but it's equally important. Things like uh, a global economy that works for everybody, that doesn't fall apart into uh, nationalist conflict, um, that also can only be solved at the global level, as, as we've been emphasizing. So part of, the, part of the messaging just is that we need a level of global cooperation among the great powers in order to overcome the terrifying challenges that we're facing right now. Um, but there is, I think there also is... Uh, another side of this, which is just talking to people, people in the United States, for example, about the Chinese government and about people in China. These are things that most people in the United States really don't have any clue about. They, there's a tremendous amount of ignorance about, there's almost absolute ignorance about what life in China is like. The, the knowledge about what the government is like is a little bit more well-established, but it's, it's, it's very one-sided. Um, and so there's a part of this that is just doing sort of classic organizing techniques, bringing people who are currently isolated from other social groups uh, together with each other so they can work together for shared ends. And, you know, we, we face that challenge very deeply in the United States across racial lines, across uh, lines of nationality, um, as well as across class lines. Uh, and we really need to uh, incorporate into that uh, attention to the ways that living in different countries separates us as, as well. And that is a bit harder in terms of doing the basic organizing work, but given the hundreds of thousands of people from China who live in the United States, uh, there's a real opening there to, to put Americans in touch with them, to humanize for them what life is like in China, the fact that people in China face many, many of the exact same struggles that Americans are facing. Um, and ultimately the fact that we, we have more in common with regular people in China than either we or they do with their respective elites. You mentioned just now racial lines and, and, and national lines. Uh, not long ago, you, you t the two of you were on a podcast called Politics Theory Other uh, that I listened to with great interest. And it actually got me thinking about how uh, attitudes toward Chinese and other East Asian East Asian people in, in America, how those translate into attitudes towards China, uh, and that in turn got me thinking about the sort of uh, racial dimension to U.S.-China relations. And so, out of that, I, I ended up writing a piece uh, with some help from my excellent summer intern William Yuan Yi. Uh, where we drew an analogy between, on the one hand, the way that the U.S., which is accustomed to this position of unchallenged hegemony, you know, globally, uh, is reacting under Trump with this inchoate lashing out at China, and 
the way, on the other hand, that white America, which is accustomed to, you know, its unchallenged privilege inside this country, is reacting under Trump again with inchoate lashing out against black America. I mean, I actually uh, referred directly to to your piece and uh, to your, 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 your chat uh, on that that podcast, which I recommend everyone check out. But um, let's let's talk a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on on the the t- ties between uh, race in the United States and America's position globally? Is there validity to this argument that I made? Um, absolutely, and I thought that was excellent. We talk about structural racism because racism is built into the structure of society, including the structure of of the economy. Um, and part of uh, racial hierarchy in the United States is uh, how the economy is racialized and, you know, people are slotted into different positions in the economy uh, according to race. Uh, we can see a different version of the exact same thing uh, at the global level in the global economy. Uh, people of different nationalities slotted into different roles within the global economy. And uh, this is also racialized and just very obvious, obvious ways. And uh, I think that uh, we have to uh, see that there is uh, a clear connection between uh, the attachment to uh, unquestioned U.S. hegemony and what we might call white supremacy, like U.S. hegemony is functioning in effect as a form of globalized uh, white supremacy. And, uh, you know, I don't think the solution to that is that, um, you know, China becomes the new um, uh, uh uh, ruling nation of, of the entire world, but um, uh, uh, what we can we, we can we can understand sort of the, the the visceral and and paranoid reaction to this um, this this uh, Chinese threat to to U.S. hegemony on the model of like you said reactions to threats perceived threats to to uh, white supremacy. We also can see a very close connection uh, between uh, specifically. Uh, anti-Chinese racism and uh, the attitudes that people have towards China. And those two things uh, inevitably get tied together because of the nature of anti-Chinese racism and, and more generally anti-Asian racism, but specifically in the, in the case of anti-Chinese racism. Uh, a, a, a crucial part of it is that uh, Chinese people are uh, seen as um, this undifferentiated collective, uh, sort of like a Borg-like collective without any true individuality. And what comes out of that is, is an inability to distinguish between China, the Chinese government, and any individual Chinese person. Those two are, are very easily uh, uh, lumped together. Um, and, you know, we see that playing out in uh, the rise of uh, anti-Chinese, more broadly anti-Asian racism here in the United States. And, uh, you know, this growing fear that Chinese people are not only, you know, early on in the pandemic, the fear was that uh, we who are of Chinese descent are vectors of disease. Um, and now we're starting to see at the popular level uh, the, the sense that uh, we should also be feared as, as all being potential spies on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and this is also being enforced by uh, U.S. government policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So Jake, Toby, what can people do uh, who self-identify as people on the progressive left in America if they want to get involved and to help, you know, carry this message further within the progressive community and to make it a bigger part of the conversation in America around foreign policy? Uh, so uh, one starting point is uh, we have a report uh, that we released we released recently based on work we did over uh, the summer. This report is called uh, Averting a New Cold War. It's available on our website. Uh, so it's based on full banking that we did over the summer, calling uh, voters in the swing states of Michigan and Pennsylvania to talk to them about what they were hearing uh, around China. And uh, our, our, our message strategy there was to use messages of the importance of international cooperation to beat the pandemic and the value of unity over uh, divisiveness and finger pointing um, to move people off of an anti-China position. And we got very promising results out of that and, and came away um, uh, with uh, some um, yeah, very promising ideas about what kinds of messaging strategies uh, can help move people. So is that is that something that's ongoing? Are you going to continue? Are you going to continue to to do this this kind of outreach, or was it just for purposes of that study? Now, I mean, now that I mean, I I, I got a chance to read through it. Now that you've you've shown that it it has efficacy, are you going to you know get it out there into wider release? These are still very live issues. Do you see you guys yourselves? continuing the, these efforts? Yeah, so uh, we we are going to uh, continue to develop this. We, we want to do more research. Um, you know, we want to see uh, uh, questions that we can get tested uh, uh, coming out of this work, uh, turning uh, the insights that we, we gain from this work into uh, a messaging toolkit uh, that we can uh, distribute to other progressive groups or candidates uh, who uh, may find it to be useful. Um, we're also talking uh, to people who are doing uh, electoral work, uh, including within People's Action, about what they are hearing uh, from from voters that they're calling or or, or texting uh, a election, like what they're hearing from these voters about China. Um, and and what I've heard recently is that there has been a recent up in uh, voters raising anti-China talking points uh, as a reason uh, to to vote for for Trump. So this stuff is out there and. Um, there is a need across the progressive movement for clearer uh, response to this stuff. Um, so uh, we'll we'll be we'll be working on that. And yeah, I, I do think that we want to do some uh, deeper research on this going forward as well. Fantastic. Well, I commend you both uh, for what you've done here, uh, and I wish you all the best. I think it's it's just so well thought through. Uh, so very persuasive, so sensible, and so fact-based. I really, uh, really like it. Yeah. Consider me on board. <laughs> that's, that's great to hear, Kaiser. I'm really glad to hear that. And I also want to thank you guys for taking the time to chat with me about this. Let's, let's, let's move on, though, first to recommendations. Uh, but let me first remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter, which is just full of great reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. So sign up and spread the word. Let's move to recommendations now. Uh, Toby, why don't you go first? What you got for us? Yeah, so uh, I recently, uh, for my summer vacation, uh, went on uh, a road to spend a lot of time listening to music, and Spotify introduced me to uh, a couple of bands that I hadn't encountered before that I want to recommend. 
Uh, one is a group called uh, OM, uh, which is based uh, here in Chicago, it turns out. They have a new album, uh, Fantasize Your Ghost, um, which I think is just fantastic. Uh, the other is the other album I want to recommend is uh, the new album from Phoebe Bridgers, uh, Punisher, uh, which um, I just found to be a, a delight. What, what genres are these in? Would you say? Oh, I I don't I, I feel like I I'm I'm getting old and I feel like I've lost track of what the genres are <laughs> nowadays. But uh, I guess proliferate. indie. I feel like indie means something different <laughs> than it did in the '90s. But some yeah. sort of like indie rock intersecting with some folk I, I don't i'm not sure anymore but roughly <laughs> sounds great whatever it is i'll check it out so ohm and phoebe bridgers yeah ohm is o-h-m-m-e ah o-h-m-m-e okay jake what about you what you got for us uh so i had uh, two suggestions here one one on china and one not on china hmm. the china one is uh, a journal that's called made in china uh, which is uh, uh, a wonderful, critical, uh, sophisticated journal writing on uh, all different aspects of Chinese society. Uh, it's, it's largely written by academics, but it's written for a popular audience. Uh, so the articles are relatively short, they're accessible, but you really get, uh, you get a much deeper look at China um, than you do in in the in the regular media, um, so I, I recommend that. I, I second I second that recommendation. We just had Christopher Atwood and uh, Christian Sorace on the show oh, to talk about uh, Mongolia. So uh, okay. Christopher Atwood wrote a, a sort of primer piece uh, on what's happening with the, the bilingual education push in Inner Mongolia. So that's that's excellent. It's a it's a fantastic read, and yeah, it's a great journal. And we got Christian to talk about the whole history of it because he's one one of the editors yeah. at Made in China. It's, it's it's very good. I'm not sure whether that show will run before or after this one, but uh, if you've heard that, fantastic. If you haven't, uh, listen up. I mean, it'll be out soon. Thanks, Jake. What's your other recommendation? Great. And then and then then the other one was, and you'll you'll have to forgive me, and I hope that that the the listeners out there will forgive me. This is a book about Hegel. <laughs> I, I already don't um, forgive and... you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just just so so much. I, the the reason I want to suggest this is first of all, I'm not suggesting that you read Hegel. Don't do that. This is a book about Hegel and is one of the one of the better ones that I think that that sort of uh, makes the thinking accessible. The reason I suggest this is because just so much of the the U.S.-China debate is stuck in this idea that we're talking about kind of known quantities that are kind of moving in linear paths, and then they come into contact with each other, probably conflict with each other. Sort of like and thesis. I think antithesis. that's really at the root. Oh, <laughs> right. A lot of this is at the root of the misunderstanding and the sort of like really rigid uh, inability to see the other side of these things when we really need to be thinking instead much more in terms of, of reversals, right? Like, like we talked about the globalization seemed to be going in one direction and then it kind of blew up and it seems to be going in the opposite direction now in terms of reversals and ruptures. And, and also the way that like people and countries, they transform. It's not like they don't have a given character, but their character itself changes through, uh, through the, the kinds of activities that they do and the kinds of relations that they come into, come into. 
Um, and so I just like changing thinking at that really base. I always, I always uh, joke that we should teach Hegel in schools. Um, it's not really a joke, but what's, um, what's the title of the book? We should at least teach. The book is called, uh, reason and revolution and it's by, uh, Herbert, Herbert Marcuse, yeah, the famous yeah, philosopher. Heard of him. Fantastic. I have a totally, uh, lame recommendation compared to that. Uh, it's a new HBO max show called raised by wolves. Have either of you caught no. any of this? No. It's a, it's a new science fiction. No. It's a, it's a good sci-fi series. Um, and it, it's set in a far flung future, uh, where earth has been basically destroyed in a war between these sort of, uh, post Christian, uh, zealots called the, the who, 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 uh, worship a deity called Sol, presumably a solar kind of god, uh, in a new Mithraic religion. So these Mithraists uh, versus atheists. Uh, the atheists have sent, or one, one atheist scientist has, has sent a couple of very advanced androids to a distant planet, an Earth-like planet, uh, where, with uh, the last surviving sort of uh, human embryos, uh, except for this 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 one little group of of Mithraists who also happen to end up on that same planet, and and it's it's about religiosity. It's about uh, a sort of so it's it's there's there's a lot to it. It's a pretty cerebral show, but it, it's also a fun and quite exciting show. Uh, raised by wolves, shot mostly in South Africa, uh, as a lot of things seem to be these days. But it's it's quite good. I, I recommend it so far. I'm pretty riveted. That's great. I've my my TV diet lately has been kind of disappointing. Yeah, yeah. So I'll check it out. Check it's on out. HBO Max. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, it was just fantastic. Uh, I'm really really pleased that uh, you could both join me. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, this was great. Kobe, it was great to talk to you. Great to finally have you on the show. All right, we'll see you again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.